Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're welcome to Signpost, uh, this morning's Signpost webinar. The webinar is brought to you by Chagask in association with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, the National Rural Network, and Food Drink Ireland. My name is Pat Murphy, uh, Head of Environment with uh, Knowledge Transfer in Chagask. Uh, sitting in for Mark Gibson while he takes some well-earned leave. I'm joined this morning by Parik Foley. Uh, we're also joined by uh, Sarah Biro. This morning, Sarah works with WIT and has in the past worked with the, the Agricultural Catchments Programme and with AFB in Northern Ireland, uh, focusing on losses of, of nutrient from, from farms. Sarah, you might just give us a, a little bit about your background and, and some of the work you've been doing. Sure. Thanks very much, Pat. And hi, everybody. It's a real pleasure to be here talking to you. Um, I am, as Pat said, a lecturer in agricultural science at Waterford IT. So I hope some of my students are logging on here this morning. They should really be attending all of the Chagask talks. Uh, previous to this, I was a member of the Agri-Food and Biosciences Institute, working with the catchment care team. And that's the research that I'm going to be talking about today, really looking at managing nutrient losses before the, uh, from farmyards. But before then, I was with the Agricultural Catchments Programme out of Chagask and Johnstown Castle. Uh, so I've probably met some of you here today before at various farm events. Uh, so really talking all things catchment science and seeing if we can mop up some of the point sources and take some of the easy wins that are there to be had. So I'm going to be talking about managing nutrient runoff from farmyards. And as I said before, this is work that's done with the Catchment Care Programme out of AFBI in Northern Ireland. And I'm working with Dunica Duty, Breach Carney and Carmel McBarron. Now, just a little bit of introduction to the Catchment Care Project. It's a very, very large project and it's an interreg project. And what that essentially means is that it's cross-border in nature. So we have partners in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland. And if you think about this, this makes absolute sense. It couldn't make more sense because our catchments are cross-border in nature. In other words, the rivers drain water from both sides of the border. And so in order to make any improvements, we have to have a harmonized understanding of where the water is coming from and where the pollution that might be in that water is coming from. Now, you've got the logos here of some of our partners. We have Ulster University, various county councils. We have the Geological Survey in uh, Britain and in the Republic of Ireland, uh, the Locks Agency and Fisheries Ireland. And really what we're looking at, depend, we have three catchments. We've got the Finn, the Arnie and the Blackwater, as you can see here. And um, each of these catchments, they're unique, as all catchments are unique. So the solutions that are going to be required in each one are going to be different. So as I said, there's a number of different arms to this project. There's part of it is the research arm, which I was involved with or which I am involved with. And we're really looking at identifying the mechanisms of nutrient loss, both from the soil and from the likes of farmyard point sources, such as farmyards. Um, I suppose that's really being led by AFBI and also by Ulster University. But another and a very, very interesting aspect to this project is that we have funding. We have 2.9 million euro, which is being, uh, I suppose, implemented in our three catchments in order through the, the community catchment schemes in order to devise solutions for those specific catchments. And these are bottom up grassroots solutions, not coming from the top down. No one's coming in and saying, this is what you need to do. Rather, we reached out to the communities and said, 
what improvements would you like to see in your own catchments? What do you think would improve, not just the functioning of your watercourses, but the amenity use? Because we all have to remember that catchments and watercourses deliver multiple ecosystem services at the same time. And all of these are of value, both to the farmers, to the water users and to the wider community. So we did things like uh, installing biofiltration using willow systems, uh, nutrient management training, uh, hydromorphological changes such as bank stabilization, which is a really quite a big issue in certain parts of those catchments, and even things like installing fishing platforms. So it's been a very comprehensive scheme. But what I'm going to talk to you here is really just about the uh, research. Now, my own research at the moment is focusing on the farmyards, and farmyards are I suppose they're underestimated really the role that they play within the farm as a whole. It's really the cockpit or the hub of the farmyard. It's where the decisions are made and it's really where a lot of the management happens. So before I move on to the nutrient stuff, let's just think about the farmyard a little bit. And sometimes we don't stop and think uh, about the places where we spend a lot of our time. They're just a sort of the background to our daily lives and to our work. But let's break down the farmyard. What is a farmyard and what actually goes on there? First of all, it's the hub for all livestock and most machinery activities. So when it comes to livestock, we're talking about our housing, our milking, our handling. That's an awful lot of activity and it's a lot of, I suppose, intensive activity. It's where you're actually getting hands on with the animals. It's also the input to the farm as a whole. Now, what do I mean by, or the inlet is possibly a better word. What do I mean by the inlet? Well, it's where feed, where silage, where deliveries, where everything that could have a nutrient or a pollutant source comes into the farm. So of course, if you can manage the inlet, it's not easier to balance the outlet and manage the, the equation, I suppose, of nutrient balancing. As well as it, it's the outlet. So it's where effluent and waste leave the farmyard or where, where they can either leave the farm as a whole and be exported off of the site or whether they enter, the, um, I suppose, the land as such. I mean, most of the waste, your slurry, your silage effluent, your dairy washing, so on and so forth, they originate or are stored in the farmyard at some point. So as you can see, it's really uh, the fulcrum of the farmyard. It's where most things happen. I do want to say one other thing about the farmyard before I move on. And this is, on, on first glance, it could be easily dismissed. The farmyard is where 64% of farm accidents actually occur. And that's according to the National Farm Survey in 2017. And that's not a totally separate idea from the idea of the farmyard as the hub for nutrient management. In other words, the farmyard is where everything happens. And a lot of the improvements that we're going to talk about, infrastructural improvements to your buildings, to your slurry and silage stores, to your hard standing and to your livestock handling facilities. These don't just allow you to manage your nutrients better and to keep your farmyard better, but they also have knock on effects for other aspects, such as your time management and such as your physical safety. And these are aspects that are absolutely crucial. They're so, so very important. And finally, on that note, I would say the farmyard is actually typically adjacent to your home. And so a dirty farmyard, an unclean farmyard, a smelly or a, you know, a, a generally in a disrepair farmyard, it does have an effect on your outside life if there is such a thing. Um, no one wants to live next to somewhere that is soiled or that is unclean or that is in other ways um, unappealing. 
So by managing our farmyard, we can see that we have a lot of, it, it spills out in wider effects, both on the farm and on your family life. So I suppose the question we want to talk about now is do farmyards contribute to nutrient loss? And by this, we mean nutrient loss to watercourses. There is some research to suggest that there could be emissions off of hard standings as well, but we're not going to deal with that here today. Today is all about water. So I'm going to give you three pieces of scientific evidence to show that farmyards are contributing to nutrient losses to watercourses. First of all, there's good documentation of elevated nitrogen and phosphorus in ditches connecting to, connected to farmyards. And I have three recent uh, publications here from Maloney et al, 2019, and that was a piece of Chagas work. Harrison et al from 2019, also this was out of UCC, and Azati et al, 2020, who was a Walsh Fellow in Chagas Johnstown Castle. And each of these studies independently measured um, phosphorus and nitrogen concentrations, both in ditch water, water standing in ditches, and in ditch sediment. And what we could see in each of those studies was an elevated dissolved reactive phosphorus and total phosphorus in ditches, in, in ditch water connected to farmyards. And in the case of Maloney et al, the, he measured uh, phosphorus and nitrogen in ditches all across entire farmyard networks and categorized ditches which connected to farmyards as category one ditches. And those category one ditches were remarkably higher in nitrogen and phosphorus than ditches anywhere else within the farm. And I suppose that makes sense um, because a lot of the nutrients don't have full time to uh, move through the ditch network and uh, into the water course immediately. We have a time lag there because they get attenuated in the sediment and they get slowed down. We also see high uh, phosphorus in the uh, ditch sediment. So we can see here from the Maloney study between 15 and 429 milligrams per kilogram of phosphorus. So as an equivalency, uh, the sediment uh, P index, if there were such a thing for sediment, is much higher than an index four would be considered for soil. So in other words, the farmyard ditches are much more heavily laden with phosphorus than an equivalent field soil. So that's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence, and this is reused with permission from Per-Eric Melander and Phil Jordan, and these are uh, total reactive phosphorus concentrations at the outlet of the Timaleeg catchment. So that's a well-drained dairy catchment. And this graph is taken from 2018. Now we've had a very fine summer here so far, but I'm sure you can all remember the drought that we had in 2018. And it was a true drought, extremely, extremely dry, uh, very, very high soil moisture deficit. And the reason this is relevant is because during drought periods, the dilution effect that we normally see in groundwater dominated catchments such as Timaleague is really turned off or tuned down. And that allows us to identify point sources because they become amplified. It's not that those point sources aren't there the rest of the year or during wetter years. It's that they are, I suppose, flushed out or, or um, muted out by the dilute, uh, diluting effects of greater water flow. So what we can see here is a very clear diurnal pattern. And by diurnal pattern, I just mean it happens twice a day we see spikes. What else happens twice a day in a dairy catchment? Well, usually milking. And what we can see here is that the total reactive phosphorus in this dairy catchment spiked reliably like clockwork uh, just after milking each day. So that's another clear sign, pardon me, I skipped ahead there. That's another clear sign of the farmyard contribution 
two water courses. And finally, I'm going to show you a piece of my own work from 2019. This was sources and mechanisms of low flow phosphorus uh, synoptic surveys. So basically what myself and the ACP team did is we walked up the entire water courses in each of our catchments and we took over 30 or 40 samples in each catchment and measured the phosphorus and the nitrogen concentrations. And what we're looking here at is phosphorus in the Ballycanoe catchment, and that's a poorly drained grassland catchment. And what we saw was very interesting. During low flow, we saw a cumulative buildup of phosphorus um, across the catchment from the headwater tributaries all along the main channel to the outlet. And at the outlet, you had the highest concentration of all. We didn't have a dilution effect. We had a snowball effect. And there was really very, very little uh, runoff to account for this. What we really saw was a gradual contribution of many, many different point sources. Now, some of these were cattle access points. Some of these were septic discharges, but many of them which could be identified were in fact farmyards. Uh, so we can see three different ways here that we can recognize um, we can recognize farmyard contributions to water courses. I would also say regarding the synoptic effect, this is not a lot of what, or the synoptic surveys, this is similar to what the ASAP and Law Pro advisory teams do, is they walk up the catchments and identify where is causing the problem, because that's where the solution needs to be implemented. So now that we've established uh, that farmyards do contribute phosphorus and nitrogen to water courses. I'm just going to briefly say that uh, we already acknowledge in the legislation, both in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, the codes of good practice uh, for agriculture cover farmyard losses. And I'm not going to dwell on the policy overly because we're all familiar with policy and the inspection process. Rather, I'm just going to say that essentially losses from the farmyard should be managed, waters from the farmyard have to be managed and uh, direct discharge is prohibited in all instances. Now, we often call farmyards a point source. And let's talk about a different point source first. Let's talk about a septic tank. A septic tank, you have a, a material which comes in, you have then a settlement, and you have material which comes out. It comes in through a single point, and it leaves through a single point. That's a true and a simple point source. Farmyards aren't so simple. As we saw in the diagram in one of my earlier slides, there's an awful lot of mechanisms of handling uh, of, of storage and delay and management goes on in a farmyard. It's very, very complicated. So in order to manage something, we first have to break it down into its component parts. And that's what we're going to do here. So first of all, we're going to use the nutrient transfer continuum to understand farmyards. And then we're going to look at the risks within farmyards. So what what actions or practices within the farmyard most control nutrient loss. So we'll break it down and then see if we can appoint or decide on solutions that will be most effective. So let's talk about the nutrient transfer continuum. And this is from an accepted paper in Journal of Environmental Quality, which should be published in the next couple of weeks. We might be familiar with this. You've possibly seen this before uh, as, a point, as applied to diffuse losses, but it turns out you can treat the farmyard as a miniature system within the wider farm system. And so you can use the same framework. First of all, the sources. Where are the nutrients coming from? Well, you have urine and feces on the hard standing. You have silage effluent, which is a particularly powerful and potent pollutant. You have spilled milk, which again is very, very high in uh, biochemical oxygen demand, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. 
and you have manure heap effluent. So these are all of the places that nutrients uh, exist within the farmyard. Then we have mobilization. Now, what is mobilization? It's the initial start of movement of a nutrient from wherever it's located to its eventual receptor. And in the farmyard, there's really two causes of mobilization. You have rainfall and yard washing. We then have delivery, and this is the bulk of movement. This is uh, the transfer part. So you can have delivery via the drainage network, through the roadway network. And then of course, and this should be uh, avoided at all costs, direct discharge to watercourses. And finally, let's mention impact, although I'm not going to dwell on it overly. What do these nutrients do when they reach our watercourses? Well, they elevate nutrient concentrations, which causes eutrophication, which is a negative growth. It's growth that we don't want. This in turn consumes oxygen within the watercourses and it chokes out or suffocates our fish and our macroinvertebrates, the species that we want to see. So I'm just going to look at this graph or this figure one more time. So each of the issues within the farmyard, so that's the sort or each of the stages within the nutrient transfer continuum, the sources, the mobilization, the delivery and the impact should be handled in a slightly different and appropriate way. So for sources, you're really looking at infrastructure or management solutions. For mobilization, you might be looking at infrastructure. And for delivery, you're looking at farmyard design. And as for impact, impact is really better dealt with at earlier stages. So it's, it's much better to offset the problem before it actually reaches the watercourse. So we're going to delve into sources uh, in a little bit more detail now. So we have urine and feces, and I think it's simplest to divide them into two categories. You have urine and feces that's being stored within the farmyard, and you have urine and feces that are deposited on the hard standing. So let's talk about the stored first. Uh, from Buckley et al. 2020, we know that 81% of farmyard waste of, of urine and feces within the farmyard is stored as slurry, with the remainder being stored as farmyard manure. Now, we're all familiar with our regional storage requirements. Uh, and the weeks of storage which we are required to have. But we do know that wet years put significant pressure on those facilities, and they can in some instances, unfortunately, force spreading under suboptimal conditions, or in fact, tanks can overflow. Now, I know this is a little bit dated, but a 1998 study showed that between 11 and 41% of pollution incidences, and this by which I mean um, immediate identifiable discharge of a pollutant to a watercourse. 11 to 41% uh, resulted from overflowing tanks. That's a very, very high number. Um, similarly, a catchment scale study in Scotland reported 44% increase in the volume of slurry which was needed to be land spread due to water intrusion. And I'm sure most people are familiar with this. You might have on paper the correct amount of weeks of slurry storage, and you might have the correct amount of livestock to match that slurry storage. However, if water is entering into your slurry tanks, this is of course eating away at your storage and it, it's requiring a greater volume which you then have to manage or dispose of. And in that Scottish study, 50% of farms didn't have enough storage capacity to account for this water intrusion as well. In reality, they had it on paper, but they didn't have it in reality. And I suppose this is a good exercise for each of you to do. If you have a slurry tank to sit down and don't just do the paper exercise, but think about it as a, do I run short of slurry storage space year upon year? And if it's happening, I mean, there can always be anomalous freakish years where you just have an absurd amount of rainfall. We've all experienced that. 
but I suppose if you think is this a problem of having year upon year, there's something I definitely need to do about it. Um, of course, management practices are crucial here. If you can empty your slurry tanks before winter when you can and make sure you, that you maximize the space that's available to you. Uh, regarding farmyard manure effluence, this also needs to be treated as slurry and stored and as spread in accordance with slurry regulations. It doesn't count as soiled water, it counts as slurry. So you ought to be collecting your farmyard manure effluent if it's housed within the farmyard. I'm not really talking here about uh, farmyard manure that is stored in field heaps, because of course they have some leaching area um, or some soakage into the soil itself. Regarding the hard standing, this is of course the paved or concreted area where most of the farmyard, farmyard activities actually occur, where you're transporting or handling animals, where they're waiting to be milked. And this can become soiled uh, due to defecation and urination while the animals are waiting. And there's studies, I think it's White et al, but I, I could be wrong on that name, um, did a study on the proportion of time uh, that animals spend in different parts of the farmyard or different parts of the farm. And this correlates directly with the amount of defecation that occurs. So of course, having more efficient milking, and this really is down not so much to the hard standing itself, but due to your parlor, due to your labor, and due to your own skill at milking, that can really uh, reduce the amount of time your livestock spends standing on the hard standing and therefore reduce its loading. So having good handling facilities and an adequate parlor size and adequate uh, labor is absolutely crucial here. And of course, we all want more efficient milking that's got uh, benefits from a wide variety of factors. So as I said earlier, what improves one thing has knock-on effects for another as well. Uh, I am going to talk now about silage effluent and it's a really, really powerful aquatic pollutant. Silage effluent is produced during the first 21 days of the ensiling process and really it results from the breakdown of the cell wall and the release of the cell contents from the plant cell. And higher dry matter, um, sorry, lower dry matter of silage, the higher your dry matter of silage at the time of ensiling, the less effluent you're going to produce and the lower your dry matter, the greater the effluent. And really you should be aiming for a dry matter over in and around or over 25%. At that dry matter, you're really producing little to no effluent. Um, now, when I said it's produced within the 21 day, first 21 days, that's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that it reaches the water course or is lost within the first 21 days. If water enters into your silage pit or enters into your bales and the bales are split or damaged in any way, that's when the effluent can wash off and must be collected. Uh, now, why is silage effluent so significant? Well, the literature shows that it is very high in nitrogen and phosphorus. So for uh, phosphorus, you could be talking at 72 milligrams per litre. It's very, very high. Um, but really, it's, there's another factor to be concerned about here, and that's the bio, biochemical oxygen demand. The high biochemical oxygen demand basically means that there's a lot of oxygen required in the water for the bacteria to break down the organic material that has been added. This depletes oxygen and leads to kills of fish and macroinvertebrates. Now, uh, in a study in the 90s in Northern Ireland showed that 8.4% of fish kills in Northern Ireland were directly related to silage effluent. That's very, very high. Um, 
There are, however, some very practical steps that you can take to not just reduce the effluent, but also to management, manage it accordingly. Because of course, there's always going to be some effluent produced in most instances, because we're not hitting over 24, 25% dry matter uh, in a lot of instances. And I'm gonna to touch on them here, but I would also direct you the Chagask Environment Edge podcast, which I'm sure some of you are listening to, excellent podcast. And they recently had Pat Moylan on from the Kilkenny Carlo or the Kilkenny Waterford Advisory Office and uh, all about silage production. But actually there was a lot of information in that podcast about the correct management of effluent and management of your silage itself, uh, which could be really, really helpful here. So I'm not going to repeat that in full, but I would say you should really check out that podcast. It was a great episode. So what are the key steps for managing? Well, first of all, let's talk about keeping your gutters clear. Uh, all silage pits should be equipped with gutters, and this is due to the runoff from over the pit face or effluent from with, generated within the pit to be collected and routed to your uh, soil water, your slurry collection stores. A gutter is no good if it's not clear. So you should, it's very, very simple check and run along with a spade and clear it out regularly. Make sure your gutters are functioning correctly. Um, so it's, that's pretty simple. The other thing I would say, and I see this a lot, particularly in good years, is that people often fill the pits beyond the front of the gutter. That's no good at all because the water cannot be collected in the gutter in that case. So make sure that you're only filling the pit to its capacity, not above its capacity. If you have surplus silage, that's well and good for you. You need to be bailing it off instead of forcing it into a pit that can't hold it. Wilting, uh, aim for 25% dry matter if you want to really reduce your uh, uh, effluent production, but will be respectful of the conditions that everyone's up against and you can't necessarily control the weather. So you, I suppose, do the best that you can in this instance. Um, other simple steps and very practical steps are keeping the apron of your silage pit clean during uh, the feeding out stage because of course this will minimize the soiling of any water that happens to fall on that apron or that inevitably does fall on its apron. And finally, let's talk about bales. Bales are very interesting. There was a good study done that looked at the stacking of bales and they found that if you stack your bales one layer high, you get roughly 24 liters of effluent per ton of silage. Now a bale is usually, I believe, in and around 800 kilograms. So per bale and a bit, you're getting 24 liters of effluent for a one layer. If you stack them two layers high, you get a whopping increase to 41 liters of effluent per ton of silage. That's an absolutely massive increase. And if you jump up to three layers, it goes a little bit higher to 45 liters of effluent per ton. So really the decision between one layer and two layers is the big decision that you have to make. Um, obviously, this really comes down in most instances to a practical decision based on time constraint or space constraints. Um, so, and then finally, if you stack them on the edge rather than the round, you can reduce the splitting. Uh, other sources are soiled wastewater, and this really uh, includes all runoff from the farmyard, including parlor washing, hard standing runoff, and uh, water generated or collected on the collection yards during milking or handling. And you can have other causes of soiling or loading of that yard, um, including spilled feed and uh, uh, soil tracked in by machineries, things like that. 
there's other issues other than nutrients in your soiled water. You have detergents, uh, lots of studies showing fecal bacteria. And interestingly, from my own study in the catchments program, you could differentiate between fecal bacteria coming from the farmyard and coming from septic tanks. It's very, very clear when it's coming from the farmyard in laboratory analysis. You have trace metals from roof runoff and often veterinary residues. So soiled water really is, um, it, it's, it's quite a challenging pollutant because there's a lot of different aspects to it. So let's talk about mobilization. And to use an analogy here, if your sources are the diesel in the tank, mobilization is turning the key in the ignition. It's what starts the movement initially. You can have all the uh, diesel in the tank you want, all the sources that are phosphorus that you want. But if something doesn't get it moving, those they are not going anywhere. So we can split into two. We can talk about rainfall and yard washing. Now, in Ireland, we have 150 to 225 wet days, rainfall days per year. That's, of course, in an east to west gradient. Uh, there's not much we can do about that. That's the conditions that we have. But if you have a soiled yard, the runoff generated during that rainfall period will be equiv uh, equivalently soiled. So you should be diverting runoff from your gutters, which causes a reduction in the overall volume and separate the clean from the soiled runoff as much as possible. Regarding yard washing, this is altogether a good thing provided you are collecting the yard washings appropriately. And there's good studies by Minogue and Majette that showed that increasing the frequency of cleaning your yard reduces the overall loading of the nutrients. So you can do this three ways. You can do it by scraping, by sweeping, or by hosing. Personally, I would push for scraping or sweeping. And the reason for this is that it doesn't generate excess water. Remember, every time you use water and it becomes soiled, you have to hold or dispose of that water accordingly. And I would say having a good quality hard standing allows for more efficient cleaning and collection. We all know it's very difficult to scrape or to sweep a cracked or a damaged yard. I would mention that you can have a fatal flaw. So this could be a cracked silage tank or a, a damaged slurry tank, which means that you don't have this mobilization step that the nutrients bypass this and go directly to becoming a pollutant to water. So really be checking your silage tanks, check your slurry tanks when they're empty and make sure they're up to uh, standard. Delivery. So now that the nutrients are moving, how do they actually get to the water course that we're worried about? We're going to talk about three ways. Number one, let's talk about roadways. All farms are connected to the farm tracks or farm roadways in some way. And there's some good research going on in Johnstown Castle on this. Um, as we all know, you can no longer have runoff from roadways into the drainage network. So make sure you're cambering things correctly. And really, you don't want water to be running down from your farmyard onto your road and then throughout the rest of the farm, because this damages and degrades your road and it's more difficult for your machinery and for your livestock as well. So you have other effects than just the water issue. Your drainage network, the Maloney study in 2019 showed that 70% of yards are connected to the drainage network. Not only do these drains have high phosphorus uh, and nitrogen in the sediment, but they also have a low binding ability. Now, what does that mean? Basically, in simple terms, it means that there is more phosphorus in the sediment of these category one ditches than they can hold on to. And when water enters the ditches, the phosphorus can become mobilized and released into the water and then flow on towards your water course. So cleaning your ditches regularly and disposing of that sediment in a suitable place within the farm can help you uh, mitigate that risk. 
And then, of course, you have direct discharge to watercourses, by which I mean a pipe, for example, going into a river. And we all know that this is prohibited. Now, finally, and I know I'm coming to the last five or 10 minutes of my talk, let's talk about risk factors. So this was an exercise and a paper that we did uh, over the past couple of years where we got experts. We had 149 people who answered surveys on what did they think were the risky factors for nutrient loss from farmyards. Um, and we had 29 questions and we asked them to rank runoff management and infrastructure factors on a scale from zero being of no risk whatsoever to 10 being of a critical and a crucial risk to watercourses. Our 29 respondents, uh, we had 67% from the Republic of Ireland and 28% from Northern Ireland. I was very happy with this because I think it's reflective of the island as a whole. And as we mentioned in the early slides, the catchment care project is a cross-border project. How do we ma manage our shared watercourses? And we can see we had a good spread between advisors, researchers, policymakers, inspectorates, and uh, people from the farming sector. So what did they rank as the most important or the riskiest factors? And when I talk about risk, uh, it's really important because this will help you make the decision. What do I spend my money and my time upon? Infrastructure came first, so they ranked collection of silage pit effluent, having adequate slurry, story, slurry storage capacity, and the condition of the silage pit as most important. And intuitively, we should all know they would be the most uh, priority issues. Runoff factors were ranked as the next most important. So these came down to direct discharge to the watercourse. So of course, if you have a direct discharge, that has to be managed immediately. That's a priority issue. We also have discharge to an open drain or ditch, and the research would back that as well, that they are an important pathway. And finally, runoff from a paved area to a watercourse. And this is something that can be easily managed by simple redesign of the farmyard. And finally, they had management factors, and they identified the frequency of yard cleaning and the level of education of the farmer. Now, by education, I don't mean do you have a bachelor's, a green cert, a PhD, or whatever else. What we actually mean is this sort of event and the Chagas podcast events actually have people been educated and informed and have they sat down and thought about the mechanics of their farm and their farmyard. So we're taking steps towards that here today. So how do we manage these three categories of risk factors? For infrastructure, it often comes down to engineered solutions. In other words, if you don't have enough slurry storage capacity, you need more slurry storage capacity or you need to reduce your numbers to match it. And this is in many cases going to come down to financial investment. And people who have an issue who, who sit down and evaluate the farmyard and say, yes, I have a perennial and recurring issue to do with my farmyard infrastructure. You need to talk to your advisor and start considering what improvements can be made. And you need to look at resources such as the TAM supports. Second of all, we have runoff factors. There's less control over this. There's not so much you can do about the position of your farmyard within the landscape and nothing at all you can do about the amount of rainfall that occurs. But you can take some steps to manage the hydro hydrology of your farmyard. And this is by breaking the pathway. And this is what the EPA and your advisors will tell you time and time again. So this might mean uh, different routing, different guttering. It could mean buffers or berms in order to direct the water where you want it to go rather than where we don't want it to go. Finally, and this is the one that I think is most important, even though it was ranked as the lowest risk factor, it's the one that you can do the most about, is management. It's simple and it's cheap. So this means cleaning your farmyard, 
managing your silage pit accordingly. Uh, a new scraper and new broom don't cost very much, but if you can remove the loading of the farmyard, you can mitigate the other issues. It takes a huge amount of investment, a huge amount of time and a huge amount of planning to increase storage tanks to manage those sort of things a little better. However, to manage your farmyard to reduce the loading, it's, it's very, very cheap and it's very, very simple. Anyone can do it. You can do it today. Uh, it's not something that you're going to say, well, it's going to take me six months and I have to get planning permission. You can make a change today. It's an easy win. And as an analogy I would use is if you're thinking of renovating your kitchen, maybe you should clean it up first and then see how you feel about it. And you can get a lot of easy wins and a lot of immediate improvements just through this step. It doesn't have to be the big thing. The small changes make big differences. So just to recap, oh, pardon me. We have our sources are our slurry and farmyard manure stores, our silage effluent, our soiled hard standing and our soiled wastewater. The mobilization factors are rainfall and yard washing. Delivery comes through the drainage network, the roadway network, and then I hope not very often direct discharge. And finally, the impacts of farmyards are seen in elevated nitrogen and phosphorus, which is eutrophication and depleted oxygen, which leads to fish kills. And then the risk factors, uh, which you could easily flip around and call the management factors, are infrastructure, so having sufficient storage capacity and sound storage capacity at that. Runoff factors, which come down to preventing direct discharge and intercepting your runoff. And finally, and crucially, management. So frequent yard cleaning, keeping your gutters clean and functioning, emptying your tanks when you can, and education. So sitting down and thinking about your yard and saying, what is working for me and what is not? And how can I prioritize what I deal with? Where can I get more advice on my farmyard? Uh, here is a flyer that we have from the Catchment Care Project. Um, and it really summarizes and synopsizes everything that we talked about here today and has the links to the relative legislation for Northern Ireland and for the Republic of Ireland. And you can get this from the Catchment Care website. Chagask also has some very good uh, flyers and leaflets on the website. So there's one called Farmyards and Water Quality, and there's one called Managing Farmyards to Reduce Soiled Water Losses. I would also say that part of the research we are doing here is contributing towards a farmyard model. And this is to go along with other hydrological models by which we in the catchment care team can, I suppose, weigh up and evaluate and estimate how much nutrients and how much water is being generated on farmyards and what is the contribution or the impact of that upon water courses. So that's more research which should be forthcoming. And hopefully we'll have something more to tell you in a year or two's time. And finally, thanks very much for having me. Uh, if you have any questions about this presentation or any of the related work, you can contact me. I'm at sarah.vero at wit.ie. And if you have any questions about the Catchment Care Project, you can get in touch with Dunica Doody. That's dunica.doody at afbni.gov.uk. Thanks very much. I'm going to pass back over to Pat and Porig now, and I think we probably have time for some questions. Thanks very much, Sarah. Very stimulating, very interesting. Uh, we have a number of questions. Just remind people that the uh, questions and answer uh, um, tab, you can uh, put in your questions to, to Sarah. I suppose that to sum up your message, a lot of it is, uh, is around take a look, get your management right before you make decisions on, on investment and know exactly what the impact of those investment decisions uh, could be. And, and sometimes people find it, I suppose, difficult to 
assess their their level of storage but there are probably a couple of quick uh and simple questions that you might ask yourself uh to to get the the, the ball rolling is there sorry is that for Porik or for myself no no for yourself yeah okay so i suppose really the thing i think is most important is um, and people get a little bit nervous about the farmyard because it's where most of the inspection attention is focused. What I would say is that people shouldn't really panic and they should just sit down and do a very, I suppose, structured and organized review of their farmyard before you even come to an inspection stage and say, well, what's, as I said earlier, what's working and what's not? Where can I see issues that need to be resolved? And what are, start with the simple steps. What are the simple things that I can improve upon? Um, before I make any big changes or before I work up to making bigger changes. Um, regarding the research, we have a lot more work to be done on farmyards. As I said, I kind of I've, we've done a very thorough review that's due to come out very shortly in Journal of Environmental Quality. Um, but there's a diverse array of research on farmyards, but they tend to look at each factor individually. So you've got one person looked at silage effluent and another person looked at yard runoff and another person looked at uh, slurry storage facilities. But really, there haven't been very many comprehensive or holistic approaches to evaluating and categorizing and managing farmyards. So really it's impossible at this stage to weigh up and say empirically based on data alone what steps will have the greatest impact so that's another reason you can only pass it back to farmers and say use your best judgment and use what you can do because there is no silver bullet or if there is i don't know of it yet okay. um so issues like that um i noticed some good questions here in the chat and i might address some of them although i don't necessarily have the perfect answer for each of them someone here has asked how much William Birchall has asked how much does stacking bales on the edge reduce effluent compared to stacking on their round side that's a great question the truth is we don't know uh, there is no study that's been done on that because I've looked for it um but one of the reasons I highlighted that particular management step is not that it necessarily reduces the effluent although there probably should be some difference just based on the physics of it but really, because it's less likely to split your bales. Remember, if the bales are intact, it doesn't matter all that much if the effluent is generated because it's contained. And like I said, the source, it might, it's, it, it's the diesel in the tank. If you don't start the ignition, don't worry about it so much. It's not going anywhere. Like the, the tank can be started at another stage. But really, your immediate issue is uh, to prevent the mobilization. So if it's on the edge, that effluent can't go anywhere. You're always going to have fermentation within the bale. That's just natural. Sorry, uh, the, the round sir. bales are pretty, just when I, you can hear me, that's great. The round <laughs> bales are a popular enough one. You've kind of struck yeah. a chord with that. There was another question there about stacking them one to three high. Um, does yeah. it increase the effluent just yes, when you are on the absolutely. topic? It does increase an effluent. So if you've got it one layer high, you've got 24 litres of effluent per tonne and a bale is in and around 800 kilograms. So just short of a tonne. Uh, if you go to two layers high, it jumps up to 41 litres per tonne. That's a massive jump. And then if you go to three layers high, it goes up to 45 litres per tonne. So I'm in my, put my farmer boots on now and say, well, what do I do? I have limited space. If you can't stack them one layer high, I would really consider moving them to a field or another area where you can stack them one layer high. One layer high will reduce the effluent. It's the biggest step you can make when it comes to managing your silage bales. However, 
being respectful of the space constraints that everyone is under. If you go to two layers high, it's pretty much the same as going three layers high. However, you have another factor before you go to three. If you go to three layers high, they're much more likely to slip and to split. And this is going to cause your mobilization. As well as that, we can see from the National Farm Survey, which is, I think, one of the most important documents that's turned out on the island each year or every couple of years, is that uh, bales and falling bales are a recurring issue and a recurring health hazard. People do get injured that way. So you have to weigh this up from their every perspective if you can. My uh, best advice on the issue is if you can move them to a field area or some other discard area where you can go one layer high, that's the best possible option for bale stacking. Is it keep, keeping with the round bales then, is it acceptable to feed round bale silage or hay to cattle in round feeders on a concrete yard anymore? Is that day gone? Um, I, I have to say, I actually don't know the rule on that at the moment, so I'm not going to hazard a guess. Okay, there was a question William Burchill mentioned them earlier on. There's another question from William there at the start that came in first. Um, and he's kind of referencing the, yeah. the comparison between your P, your milligrams per litre in soil indexes and putting it into a kind of language that farmers are accustomed to. Yeah, that's a great, great question. So just to be clear, there is no index system as applied for ditches. Uh, in other words, you're not required by law uh, to have an index two or an index three ditch. There's no such thing. But as a, as a, I suppose, as a tool for communicating to farmers how much phosphorus or how potent the phosphorus is in your ditches, yeah, I would say relating it to the index system is probably the simplest way to, uh, I suppose, to communicate that issue that they are very, very high in phosphorus. I suppose the issue isn't just that they're high in phosphorus, but depending on your the design of your ditch and depending on the substrate of your ditch, it could be particularly vulnerable to movement and vulnerable to loss. So even if you're not, even if you cleaned up your farmyard, right? And you had absolutely pristine, you could eat your dinner off at yard, but your ditch is very, very high in phosphorus that phosphorus is under a time delay system as such. And at a later date, when the ditch becomes full of water, that phosphorus is going to get up and get moving on its way down the watercourses. I would say ditches, you know, we see them often as a pathway and something to worry about, but actually it's a great opportunity for mitigation. In other words, I don't, I wouldn't rather do my mitigation in the field or in the farmyard where it takes up valuable space that's used for other farm activities. The ditch is already space that is set aside, that is not actively contributing to the holding of animals or to production of valuable grass or crops. So if you can put in an infrastructural solution in your ditch, it's a very, very efficient use of space. What do I mean by infrastructural solutions? Very, very simply, I could mean a sediment trap, which is just something that slows down the flow and allows your sediment to drop out. I could mean widening the ditch so that if you have a wider ditch, you've got slower flow. Slower flow means the heavy sediment and the nutrients on that sediment can drop down to the bottom. And then just management things, emptying your ditches, scraping them out at intervals and put the sediment in a field area out of an appropriate index. So somewhere that needs that phosphorus and needs that nitrogen. The biggest problem I see with ditches is that people clean them out and leave the sediment less than a meter away from the original ditch. Where do you think that's going to go in the first rainfall? You may as well not clean it out at all. In fact, you could be doing more damage because now the bed is disturbed and the sediment is loose and it's just going to be carried all the way to the river. So land spread it where it belongs. But yeah, William, that's a really good point. Um, 
from a communications point of view, talking about the, the index system is possibly a good application. But just to be clear, it's not the rule. Sir, if management changes in a farmyard like that, how long will it take for those ditches to come back to an acceptable level of NMP? Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose the ditches, it depends. This, the, the nitrogen phosphorus will remain in the ditch and will remain high until that sediment is taken away. However, if you clean your yard and ignore the ditch, just say the yard itself, the yard stops losing nutrients the minute the nutrients aren't there to be lost. In other words, because it's an impervious surface, your runoff happens very, very quickly. You don't have the lags that you have in your soil or in your land area. So really by improving your farmyard, you can have a very, very quick response in your watercourses, provided your ditches aren't also contributing because the two are very difficult to, I suppose, disaggregate, tease apart when you actually have your boots on the ground. So your ditch creates the, the ditch changes in the ditches have a delay, but changes in the farmyard are revealed very, very quickly. So is there any indication as to quantifying the value of the P and the N lost to, you know, to those point sources in farmyards? Like from a monetary point of view, what could farmers be saving by managing the nutrients in their farmyards correctly? So this is the big challenge and this is the big question and this is what we're doing with the catchment care project at the moment. The truth is, is that no one really has evaluated them and that's because it's complicated because it's very, what we use for this is hydrological models. So we have a, a mathematical model of the catchment or of the farm as a whole and we try and account for all of the water and all of the nutrients coming in and out. The difficulty is that it's difficult to tease those things apart. So this is what we're doing in the catchment care project at the moment. We have a model that's trying to estimate the farmyard contribution, and we're validating it through monitoring in three catchment farms in Northern Ireland in the catchment care project, and hopefully more farms to follow. But to date, we don't have a number on it. Hopefully that's something that we will have as the project progresses. It's a big question. People have been asking this for a, quite a while. It, it's a difficult one. Okay, yeah, pounds, shillings and pence generally talk to farmers, you know. Yeah. Um, when cleaning the back to the ditches, when cleaning the drains and the ditches, what's the best practice to dispose of the material removed by the digger? Land spread. It should be land spread on a soil that has a low P index uh, during dry conditions. That's the best thing you can do with it. Okay, back to silage then again. To reduce pollution from silage, can we go back to haymaking? or high level, uh, less cattle will mean less slurry and other farmyard pollution? I mean, there's a lot of haymaking done this year, I suppose. I saw certainly in the Southeast, it really, really depends on your own, um, your own enterprise and what suits your landscape and what suits uh, the year that's in it. So I don't think it's possible really to go away from silage making as a whole. I think that's fairly unlikely, although uh, prove me wrong, uh, it is a very, very good feedstuff. So I'm not saying abandon one or take up the other. I, I think that would be rather extreme. I think it really comes down to improving our practices in silage making and silage management. And it comes down small things like the overfilling of the silage pits is a really, really big one. You essentially mean that there is no guttering if you do that and all of the effluent must, it can only run off, it cannot be collected. So before you go and change your entire enterprise, maybe look at how you're managing what you have. Um, let's not do anything dramatic. 
there's a number of questions here that reference climate change and uh, I guess the large volumes of water that are falling now when rain does hit mm -hmm. and the impact that that has on storage and uh, I guess some of the questions are around um, policy and how policy reflects the increase in rainfall and others are just around management of, of farmyards taking into consideration the amount of water that's falling when it does rain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's going to be a tricky issue because, of course, uh, in increasing the volume of storage capacity isn't actually a silver bullet. People do talk about this a lot. Oh, we need more st storage capacity. If you have more storage capacity and you fill that, that's more water or more slurry that you have to spread during a narrower part of the year in principle. So it doesn't actually solve your problem at all. If it were me, if it were my decision, I would say it comes down to better partitioning and the management of whatever rain happens to do, fall, to do fall, whether it's a large amount or a small amount. So as I said, if you can separate your clean water from your soiled water and ensure that the water that falls isn't falling on a soiled surface, you don't have to store that. And if you don't have to store that, you can allow natural soakage and natural drainage from your farm to take care of it. Um, so I really think that money spent on infrastructure, not on storage infrastructure, but on partitioning and routing infrastructure. And by that, I mean good guttering, uh, good diversions, um, appropriate berms and slopes so that the water can go where you want it to into storage if it needs to be, but away from storage if it's clean. That can really go a long way to making sure that um, uh, you can manage the facilities accordingly as i said uh, i don't think more policy or more regulation is necessarily the answer i think because if you just say well 30 weeks storage well now you have 30 weeks of slurry to dispose of that doesn't solve the problem at all actually so i really think it's about managing our water more cleverly and more efficiently something i haven't seen a lot of in ireland yet but i would be really really excited to see is water harvesting because of course we can recycle and reuse there's no reason if you collect clean water that you can't use it for the hosing of your dairy parlor and things like that I haven't seen very much investment or very much research into that to date, but that would certainly be very exciting. We've seen such great and really impressive leaps forward in the use of solar panels and all the dairy parlors now running off of solar power. There's no reason we couldn't be more internally sustainable and not have to pump so much water uh, from our wells and use what's falling directly instead. We could see similar increases or improvements in technology. And I think that's probably ahead of us in the next few years. And that kind of brings us to a comment and um, you were asked to comment on slurry separation or reverse osmosis that kind of leads into that nicely. Yeah, I mean, it would be great to see, I suppose we need the infrastructure and we need the investment. I haven't personally experienced or seen much of it uh, happen yet. Um, but if anyone has it going on in their farmyard or in local areas, drop me an email. I'd love to come out and see that in action. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, just you mentioned the sediment trap, Sarah, and you mentioned yeah. um, widening. And, and just to be clear, you didn't say over widening, but there's a comment here sure. from an ecological perspective, over widening or over deepening ditches and drains is um, kind of questionable advice to provide yeah. farmers with. It could have a negative impact on the water quality or drainage of ditches. Um, do you just want to comment on that? Yeah, totally. I, I, I'm certainly not advising anything extreme there and any modifications to your drainage should be done uh, along with someone who's an expert in drainage or a Chagask advisor who will be able to say what is appropriate for your specific scenario, as we showed from the rainfall patterns earlier. And as we all know from the soil map, 
we have quite a diverse landscape and a diverse drainage landscape in Ireland. So the solution here in the sunny southeast is certainly not going to be the appropriate drainage for northern Mayo horses for courses. So what I would say is consult with your drainage planner and with your Chagask advisor to see what system is appropriate for you. All I'm saying is that it's an appropriate place for infrastructure, not that there's a specific infrastructure that is going to be appropriate for you. Yeah, good to just clear that up. Yeah. Thoughts? Sorry, Pat, go ahead. Yeah, there's a couple of questions in there about the appropriateness of, of having sediment uh, uh, ponds and or a, a, a filt uh, filtration boxes, if you want to call them that, or filtration systems uh, for the, the um, ditches going away from farmyards. Yeah, I suppose there's been a little bit of work done on them. There's been an awful lot more work on the likes of constructed wetlands. Uh, I suppose the challenge with them, even though they're more widely used, is I suppose they take up an awful lot of space. They need enough space if they're to be working correctly. And then I suppose the, the issue around increased inspection uh, has put some people off. But I think perhaps unnecessarily, they are very effective when they are properly designed. Regarding the sediment traps, that's simply any sort of a structure that slows down and stops the water and allows the sediment to fall out. So that can be as simple as a concrete or a timber berm. I've seen some of those in catchments working very, very efficiently. Uh, regarding more complicated infrastructure, such as denitrifying bioreactors, we've kind of seen mixed results uh, with that throughout Ireland. Some work very well, some not so much. There's good work out of Chagas Johnstown Castle out of NUI Galway and out of the University of Limerick on their efficacy. Uh, John Murnane in Limerick has done great work on denitrifying bioreactors and Mark Healy in NUI Galway. So I would suggest looking at some of those pieces of work for more detailed information there. They can work, but it really comes down to the design and really having the appropriate drainage, so the appropriate rate of drainage in and out and the appropriate retention time is absolutely crucial. So again, Sweeping statements don't do much good there. Um, it, it's it's a very much an engineered solution requiring quite a, not complex, but some serious thought and attention. We time for a couple more, Pat? Just a couple more and then we'll, we'll call it. Just on, on, on slurry, we've the round bales, we've nearly covered all the round bale questions, but there was one there about the, the number of wraps on the bale, does it make a difference? And another one just based on the, if farmers have slurry applied already and they just have effluent to apply, are you aware of any products that will prevent the effluent from burning off the grass? Okay, they're great questions. Regarding the wrap, more bales, more, sorry, more wrap on your bale obviously reduces the likelihood of splitting. And if you can reduce the likelihood of splitting, the effluent's not going to run off when you don't want it to. And of course, you're reducing the likelihood of contamination of the bale, which I know isn't a pollution issue, but it is probably one of the bigger issues with uh, silage bales and what would have people concerned. But again, if you can store those bales appropriately, uh, irrespective of the number of layers of wrap, you will reduce the splitting. Uh, the other question was in relation to amendments to slurry or silage effluent. So if you have, uh, if, if there's farmers out there and they have all of their slurry spread and they're using the nutrients to grow grass now while the growth is, is still there, all they have left to spread just to empty tanks and have them ready for the winter. So they have their 16 week storage. Mm -hmm. They just have silage effluent spread, spread, but the silage effluent on its own can scald or can um, damage the, the grass. Yeah. Are you aware of anything that can help with that? Or is it yeah, so I've, I've talked to some advisors about that and they would, 
frequently advise diluting the silage effluent or better yet, they said mixing it with your slurry. And now I haven't done this personally, but this is the advice I've got from advisors is that it's a very good dilutant for overly thick slurry. So you could just mix it in with your slurry tank and that'll reduce the, I suppose, the acidity and the potency of it, but it's also good for loosening up your slurry for spreading. And if you're moving to an umbilical system or if you're using an umbilical system, Number one, good on you. I think it's a good move. But as well as that, it can definitely make this, the slurry that little bit more fluid, which is what you need for uh, an umbilical system. The very, very dry or very high dry matter slurry doesn't really work so well with them. Last thing I'd say is, Pat, there's, there's oceans of questions here, Sarah, yeah. but there's lots of compliments, Sarah. There's lots of compliments about um, keeping succinct and giving three points, three kind of targets for the farmer and seemingly remind somebody of their old boss back in the 1960s. So I, I, that's a compliment. Um, but there's a number of people actually asking for your contact details again, if you wouldn't mind shouting them out. Yes, absolutely. It's S-A-R-A dot V-E-R-O at W-I-T dot I-E. So that's sarah.vero at wit.ie or just look up Sarah Vero at Waterford IT and you'll find me easily enough. Excellent. And I Thank suppose you. if you're if you're if you're looking for a day to go out and have a look at the farm when there's potential for torrential rain coming down <laughs> over the next uh, over the next 24 hours in various parts of the country, it mightn't be a bad time to put on the wet clothes in the middle of a shower of rain and see what's happening to the water on your farm. But you know, absolutely, and you know, you, you check your slurry tanks and you check your silage tanks when they're dry and empty. But if you want to see your infrastructure, how it's performing. Get out there in the rain and you'll see all the leaky gutters and the runoff down the roadways and whatever other issues there might be. Look, everyone has issues and we can all make improvements. But I suppose the big takeaway that I want from this presentation is let's start with the small things. Let's start with the cleaning and then move up through the infrastructure and then we can look at the big things. But if you haven't solved the small issues first, you're jumping the gun to simply go for more storage, more regulation, things like that. We can have big strides forward here and those easy wins, they're not to be sniffed at. They're very, very significant, particularly for farmyards, because as we saw from the early slides, particularly Per Eric's graph there from the catchments program, it's really a diurnal issue. It's really yeah. related to farmyard practices. So improving your practices means you, you can go an awful long way to reaching the solution. And I suppose that the fact that uh, you, your farmyard can have a disproportionate effect because it can be putting in nutrients at times when there's no, when there's very yeah. little water there. So yeah, yeah. listen, thank oh, you very much. Can I mention yeah, sorry. one yeah. more thing? I almost forgot. I'm here with WIT and we recently set up, I, I was down there on campus yesterday accepting equipment. We're setting up a new silage laboratory where we're going to be looking at silage production and at silage effluence. So there will be more research. A lot of the questions I couldn't answer here today, it's because no one's done it yet, but we're doing it now. So hopefully I'll be able to give you better answers in a year or two's time. Happy okay. focused on round bales. That's it, absolutely. <laughs> Listen, thank you very much, uh, Sarah. Thank you, Parik. And, and thanks for everyone who joined us. I, and I suppose thanks again to our production team, Vandy Boland and Andy Von Maher. Uh, next week, we're taking a, a, a slightly different tack. We're looking at archaeology and farming, and we'll be joined by Hugh Carey, who is an archaeologist with the National Monument Service as uh, part of the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage. So I think that should be a very interesting uh, uh, look at some of the uh, archaeology that's on our farms and how we should go about protecting it. So thank you very much for joining us, and stay safe till next week. We'll see you then.
You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.